Tonight, we're actually going to be laying a foundation for the classes that, and the exhort over the period of the next few weeks, God willing. And let's start by going to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll have a look at verse, the last uh, two or three verses of that chapter. 1 Timothy 3. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. <clears throat> and he says this. Verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when we look at that verse, and by the way, did you notice that in our opening prayer this evening that Brother Angus addressed the living God? And that's a little phrase that uh, I'm not aware whether he realised it came out of 1 Timothy, but there it is. And it's also in the words that we'll get to a bit later. It's a, a lovely exercise. If you want to do a little exercise to follow through the scripture, the term, the living God. It's a worthwhile exercise for us to do. So what are we learning? We're learning here that there is an ecclesia that is involved with a living God. Now, this ecclesia is made up of individuals. And Timothy, this is a house. This is the ecclesia of God. It's a living God. These are living beings. It's, it's not inanimate, is it? It's not like this building we're sitting in here. It's an inanimate object. This is a living God and he's calling living beings. So when, when we're talking about the ecclesia of God, we're actually talking about beings that have been called by God, as Timothy's told here, to behave himself in a way that shows he's associated with this living God. Now, the ecclesia... is the called out ones. Now, just have a look here. And this is Rotherham and Weymouth. Now, Rotherham, translating that verse 15, says, But if I should tarry, that thou mayest know how it behoveth in a house of God to behave oneself, the which is an assembly of living God, pillar and basement of the truth. Now, that's a literal translation. Let's have a look at Weymouth. All this I write to you, though I'm hoping before long to come and see you. But for fear that I may be hindered, I now write so that you may know how to behave in God's household, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So Timothy, what I want you to understand, just in case I don't get there for a while, Timothy, what I want you to understand is how you should behave inside the ecclesia of God because this God that we worship is a living God and his ecclesia is made up of or made up from the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now when we look at that, the ecclesia that he refers to, we know what that word means, it's, it's the called out ones. So these are people and they're living people. And Peter refers to this, and we'll look at this in a little while in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he talks about us being lively stones. 
So we've got a building, says the Apostle Paul, and that building is made up of a pillar and a buttress. A pillar is a foundation. Now I notice in your building here, uh, there's a framework. So your building, this, this physical building, is made up of a foundation and then there's a framework. And inside that framework are bricks. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy, see? He says, the living God has made a foundation and a framework. And Timothy, your job and the the responsibility of every brother and sister is as a brick to fit inside that framework based on that foundation to reflect the living God Who's called us? The ecclesia is made up of a group of individuals, living beings who have been called to fit into that foundation and that framework. And so we get shaped, don't we? And we get put into place. So where we fit in the ecclesia is something we want to deal with in one of our latter classes together. So what Timothy, when you are at work, in establishing the ecclesia, remember the foundation, remember the framework, and remember that your brethren and sisters are real living bodies. And they are to reflect the living God. Now just come with me to Mark chapter 12. You'll remember this occasion where the Lord Jesus Christ was questioned. And in Mark 12, he was approached in verse uh, 23, well, back in verse 18, by a group of Sadducees. And they told the story about, you know, the woman who had these husbands who one after another died. And in verse 23, their question was, in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And the Lord, of course, tells them, well, look, you don't understand the scriptures. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. But as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, and he quotes here, of course, from Exodus chapter 3. We know the story about the burning bush. And I just ask a simple question. I wonder if we were confronted to try and find a passage in the first five books of the Bible, because that's all the Sadducees would accept, would our mind have gone to Exodus chapter 3 to prove the resurrection? Well, the Lord did, and look at what he says. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now that's the point, isn't it? We say, well, as Paul quoted uh, to Timothy, the living God. Well, he is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful, he's still the God. We often in our prayers refer to our God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. Why do we refer to them? Because they had a living hope. They will one day be resurrected to life. They will receive eternal life. They'll be blessed in the kingdom of God on earth. 
He's the living God. It's a real, lively hope. And that's the point our Lord is making. You know, actually, we'll go back there. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. So when Moses sees the, this uh, event, the burning bush, out in the desert, in verse 6, this is the verse that the Lord has quoted. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. Verse 14, that's a verse we often refer to because it speaks to us about the name and therefore the character and purpose of the Almighty. And God said unto Moses, I will be whom I will be. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I will be hath sent me unto you. Now, the first thing I want you to know by that, brethren and sisters, is that, you know, I am that I am could be speaking about an inanimate object, but that's not. I will be in whom I will be. That's speaking about people. And in verse 15, God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So he wasn't just the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is the point that Moses is learning. So when we say this is a living God, and this uh, principle that Paul is teaching Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, didn't just apply to Timothy, it applies and has applied to the ecclesia of God from the, the days of the garden until the end of the thousand years. Here's a principle. Human beings are called to conform to a foundation and a framework to fit into the purpose of our living God, just as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did. It's for every generation and that includes us. So the living God is a frame for us to conform to. And he's provided that in a foundation and a framework here. And in a literal sense, you've been blessed to have that. In a literal sense, but also in a spiritual sense, you are blessed because you've got that here too. As, uh, you know, I would hope we're blessed in our meeting up at Glenlock to have exactly the same, a physical hall, but also the spiritual sense that we have the opportunity to base ourselves on the foundation that's been laid and the framework that's been put there by God, that we might fit into that framework and become part of the living God. Now, come with me to what we read this evening, Matthew chapter 16. And in verse 13, where we started, we read that Jesus was in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. So here he is way up on the northernmost extremity of uh, the, the, uh, the time he spent on the earth. He's way up there under the shadow of Mount Hermon. Did you notice the question he asks? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now what's that phrase, the Son of Man am? Well, 
See, the Lord is showing that he's a human being. He's born of a woman. So he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Bearing in mind that I'm born of Mary. I bear human nature. I'm a human being like all other members of the human race. Who do people say I am? Well, they said, oh, John or one of the prophets or Elijah or whoever. Okay, well, who do you think I am? Do you notice the answer that Peter gave? He said, you're the Messiah. Now, Jesus had described himself as the son of man. You're the Messiah, says Peter, the son of the living God. And because he was the son of the living God, there's the foundation. And that's what Peter was saying. Whilst you may be born of a woman, God's purpose is being fulfilled in you in that he's provided a Messiah that mankind might be saved. And that's what Peter said. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that unto you, Peter. What you've learned, Peter, doesn't come from within our nature. That's something that has come extraneous to the human race. I'm the son of man. Yes, says Peter, I know that. But you're more than that. You're the son of the living God. And you've provided the hope of eternal life as the Messiah. But that will never come through flesh and blood. That will only come through the work of God. And that's why I'm the son of the living God. And I say unto you that you're Peter. And upon this rock, upon that statement, upon that, that, that commitment, upon that understanding, my ecclesia is going to be built. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell? Well, that speaks to us, doesn't it, of death. The grave. And what's the Lord saying? Well, my Father in heaven is provided a means whereby mankind can be saved. And your statement, Peter, is the fundamental basis upon which the ecclesia will be built. And that will overcome the power of sin and death. And only God can provide the means whereby that can be achieved. And the ecclesia is built on that foundation. It doesn't come from us. I can't do anything to solve the problems of the world and nor can you. But God can and God did as a living, vibrant being, he sent his son into this world to provide a living hope 
And when men and women like Peter recognise that it is only through that one man that life, eternal life, can be made available to mankind, then the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And though we may fall in the article of death as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob have, he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As far as God's concerned, he's their God, though they are dead and moulded into the dust. Irrelevant in God's eyes. And that's the purpose of the ecclesia. To allow that purpose of God to be seen in the lives of human beings. That's the very foundation. And he's called us as a group together to share that hope. Come with me to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. Sorry, I've just flicked up on the screen in case... Um, I, I have referred to this, but I should have done this. The word pillar in First of Timothy 3.15 means a solid or firm foundation and the word ground means a stay or a prop and that's what I was referring to before. So the pillar and ground is the foundation and the framework. So the walls of the ecclesia are those who are called by God to be part of his ecclesia and Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 5 calls them lively stones or living stones. And in verse 6, he talks about Christ being the foundation stone. So he's the foundation. And that's what Matthew chapter 16, that's what Peter was recognising and that was the statement that Peter was making. Now in Ephesians 2, Paul says this, verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Now the word quicken means to make alive. So when we were dead, when we were without hope, and as Paul says in verse 12, when we were strangers from the covenants without hope, when we had no hope, we were made alive together with Christ. Now you'll learn something about me. I colour in words. And in verse 5, you want to highlight the word together because in verse 6, and hath raised us up together and hath made us sit together. You can't miss that point, can you? What's Paul saying? Well, when we were without hope, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive and he's elevated us to the same I was going to say status, that's not the right word, but to the same level in the sense of having the same hope as the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that hope? Eternal life. So here we are, says the apostle, we're human beings. We're prone to sin, we're mortal, we are without hope. And the Lord, God, has quickened us or brought us to life together with Christ in Christ. And here we are together with Christ. And in verse 6, we have been raised up together and we've been taken that we might sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Together, together, together. 
Now, do we deserve that? That's the point that Paul is really making because what he does, he puts in italics, by grace you are saved. And it's just a reminder, isn't it? That here we are, you and I have been called out of the billions and billions of people that live in this world to have some understanding of the things of God, to be elevated with the Lord Jesus Christ, to have the hope of eternal life, with the prospect of literally sitting in heavenly places with our Lord. Now come to the last couple of verses in that chapter. Well, take verse 20. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, going back to that principle from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, highlight, and it groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So here we've got a group of people, says the Apostle Paul, and there's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's he's the one we've got to frame ourselves around. He's the one that forms our shape. It's his character that we have to develop in our life. And all that building, so this whole building, all of those brethren and sisters inside that framework, in their lives, in in some way, are being moulded and shaped to fit in with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're growing. It's unusual, isn't it? If you found that you had the bricks in your home actually growing bigger every day, you'd think you had some sort of structural problem, wouldn't you? But that's not the problem in the ecclesia. We want growth, not just in numbers, but we want growth. We want growth in character. We want individuals to grow in Christ. So we've got to grow together. And so as those bricks... You know, we've got mortar between our bricks, haven't we? That moulds them together. Well, in our ecclesia, we need, we need these bricks to be moulded together. They give strength. But it also means that we have to fit with the brother or sister next door that way and also to the one on the right and the one on top and the one below. And as a group, we all have to fit the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 22 he says, in whom ye also are builded together, highlighted again, what for? For an habitation of God through the Spirit. So we're conforming to this chief cornerstone. We see the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to mould ourselves to grow more like him to be shaped like him. And in doing that, says the Apostle Paul, we become a place where the Spirit of God can live. Now, how does that happen in a a weak mortal frame? Well, it happens up here. Because we're shaping ourselves, not physically, 
but mentally, spiritually. So today, our responsibility is to grow spiritually in the things of God. How do we do that? Because we focus on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. For us, brethren and sisters, he is God. For the human race, he actually represents God, doesn't he? Because he was, he was God's son here on earth. And for us as human beings, we look to him to, as our representative before the Almighty. And that spirit has got to be developed in us and in the ecclesia. So all of the brethren and sisters who are part of the Cumberland Ecclesia are doing all they can to become an habitation for the Spirit of God, for a Christ-like attitude and a Christ-like character to be developed. And there's a reason for that, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Okay, let's go across to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When we look at uh, the Ecclesia and we say, well, we're, we're, we're part of the living God. God is at work through his son to bring living beings, live creatures into the Ecclesia that they might grow more like Christ and therefore are a reflection of God. In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8, this is what we read. But to us there is but one God the Father of whom are all things and we in him. So this is a work of God. So in the ecclesia, we don't, do we, get the choice to say, well, you know, brother blogs or sister whoever, we, we don't want them in the meeting. That's someone we don't get on with, so we don't want them here. No, no, this is the work of God. We are in him. And every brother and sister that comes into the Ecclesia has come because God has called them. And we are in him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are, and we, Jesus Christ. So it's a work of God performed by the Lord Jesus Christ, then to be shown in those that have been called and are members of the Ecclesia. So just come across to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. You know, the, the story that's happening here in, in Corinthians, of course, is the, there's been a breakdown in the relationship between brethren and sisters. You know, I'm not part of the body. I'm, um, you know, I don't want anything to do with that brother over there. And, and all the arguments and difficulties that were seen within that ecclesia. And the Apostle Paul is trying to address that through the, the first epistle to resolve that. There are moral issues, there's doctrinal issues. There's a breakdown in relationships. There's all sorts of matters that are causing a, a destruction of relationships within the ecclesia. Now, when we look at verse 12 of chapter 12, the Apostle Paul lays down a very simple principle. The body is one, even though it's got many members. 
And all the members of that are, are all members of that one body. Although there's a lot of them, it's still one body. So also is Christ. So he's saying, look, just think of the human body. So all these organs and whatever make up our body. Uh, and, and without all of that, the body's not complete. So Paul says it's very simple. That's the ecclesia. And if you flick over the page to verse 18, he then says this. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. So we had a brother who stood up in verse 17 and he says, uh, look, uh, I'm an ear and I don't want to do with anything to do with the eye. Or I'm a foot and I don't want anything to do with a hand. And Paul says, wait a moment, God hath set the members, every one of them in the body. So brother I was actually put there by God. And in fact, says Paul, it pleased him. God was pleased that brother I came into the ecclesia and fitted into that little spot there. That little brick, brother I, he just went clunk. There, there was a little place prepared for him. And God had done that. Because that brother had heard about the living God who provided the hope of eternal life. And he did that through his son. And he thought about that. And that brother said, well, I'd like to be more like that son and I'm going to change my character and I'm going to be different. And I'm going to do all I can to reflect the character of the Son of God and be thankful that God through his grace has called me. So says the Apostle Paul, God was pleased when that brother said, slot me in the hole there. I'll be a brick in the wall. And lo and behold, if you come down to verse 28, here were these Corinthian brethren arguing about who had what in the sense of a gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says, God hath set some in the ecclesia, first apostles, then prophets, etc., etc. This is a work of God. We don't get a choice. I mean, we don't, do we? We don't go out and preach the gospel and say, well, sorry, you know, we're not taking your type today. That's not how God works with human beings. That's not how the ecclesia operates. Now, if that's in taking that principle, if that is preaching, what about the application of that inside the ecclesia? If we've got brethren and sisters who all have come to an understanding of the gospel and all of us look at the living God and we acknowledge that that God has made available through the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the hope of the resurrection and he brought his son into this world, the son of man who was the son of the living God that we might be saved then we've got to be very careful, don't we? 
in how we relate with our brethren and sisters. We have to be very careful, for God hath said, it was God that called, and it was God that made the hope available through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Verse uh, 12. And Paul says this. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you've got a responsibility, says Paul, uh, whether I'm there or whether I'm not, to go about, working out how you are going to, in your life, obey the call that you've been left with. You've got a responsibility to do that. And Paul says this, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here we are, we are blessed. We've been called to an understanding. Our Lord is absent. But we're left with a responsibility, says the Apostle, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to remember the great calling, the blessing we've got, and to make sure we respect and honour the fact that God has called us and that God has made that hope available. And in verse 13... You and I have to recognise it was God that's working in us to do what? His goodwill and pleasure. He wants us to be like his son, who's a reflection of himself. That's God's will. He didn't call us to an understanding of his gospel message because I'm any great shakes compared to anyone else. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got everything to do with doing God's will and God's good pleasure. That's why we've been called. He wants those walls fully constructed with living stones, all fitting into that foundation stone. You know, there's an interesting outcome that the Apostle Paul says. Read verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's remarkable. Now, you may not have murmurings and disputings in your ecclesia. Be be a different ecclesia if it didn't. Most ecclesias have problems from time to time. But you see, what's Paul saying? He's saying, well, look, you've got a responsibility. You've been called. You've got a responsibility to work out your own salvation. You've got to apply yourself to that. Because God's blessed you. And why has he blessed you in verse 13? Because he wants his good pleasure. He wants his purpose fulfilled in you. And if we are living the purpose of God in our life, says Paul, you will not have murmurings and disputings. That's the point, isn't it? 
somewhere at, in, at the root of every issue we face in ecclesial life, and you could say the same thing, I guess, for personal, in personal lives, will be some human weakness. Some human weakness. And for the greater part, it's usually pride. And we've all got a fair dose of that. But that's what Paul's saying. You work out, you do what you can, says the Apostle Paul, to work out the will of God in your life. And inside the ecclesia, you'll find murmurings and disputings disappear, or at least are minimised. Because God's will comes first. Being like the Lord Jesus Christ becomes our primary objective in life. There's a verse we always quote, Ephesians 5.25 at a wedding. But it doesn't just apply the principle to a husband and a wife. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the ecclesia and gave himself for it. And we talk about that principle, don't we? And rightly so, that for a husband, it means no personal ambition, no um, seeking of your own welfare. What we do is to please our wives. Now that same principle applies in the ecclesia because the Apostle Paul tells us the husband and wife, this is the story of Christ and the ecclesia. And what did he do? He gave himself for it. What was the motivating force? Well, he tells us it was love. Christ also loved the ecclesia and gave himself for it. There was no personal ambition on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he didn't desire human glory. He did everything humanly possible over and above what, what we could ever possibly imagine could be achieved by a human being on behalf of God. He willingly gave his life. And there's the force. The only power, the only power that can accomplish what it is we're talking about this evening, the development of the ecclesia and the willingness of brethren and sisters to work together and for personal ambition and pride to be put aside, the only power that will ever, ever make that possible is love. Outside of that, we don't have, there's no chance at all of that ever happening. Love, well, that's love of God, love of our Lord Jesus Christ, and love of each other. If we don't have that, it will never occur. And that's what Ephesians 5 is telling us. A husband and wife will never, ever happily remain together without that force. It's impossible. And so there is the, is the power. Now I want to show you a couple of scriptural examples of individuals who allowed that power to operate in their life. Come with me to Acts 7. The first of these is Moses. A most remarkable character. You know, Stephen in Acts 7 
makes a, a, a simple statement, the power of which is incredible. Verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall you hear. Deuteronomy 18. This is he that was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, etc., etc. Said, look, we're going back to Egypt. What's Stephen saying? Well, here's a man who was face to face with the Yahweh angel. Here's a man who spent 40 days up a mountain in communication with God. Here's a man who had untold occasions in his life direct communication and instruction from God. And the people said to him, see you Moses, we're off, we're out of here. We're off back to Egypt. We want nothing more to do with you. What did Moses do? You see what Stephen says in verse 38? This is he that was in the ecclesia in the wilderness. Did Moses turn around and say, right are you lot, I want nothing more to do with you. He was in the ecclesia. He never separated himself. You come with me back to Numbers chapter 27. Verse 12. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Get thee up unto this Mount Abarim, and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert, and so forth. So here we are, he makes a mistake. And God says to him, well, you can't go in. Climb up this mountain, I'm going to show you. Now, brethren and sisters, Stephen says... He battled his way for 40 years with those people. They showed him no respect. They didn't take into account that God spoke with him. They didn't take into account that he was God's representative. Never once did he separate himself from them. He makes one mistake and what does God say? You can't go into the land. Now you're going to go up that mountain, Moses, and you're going to die. What did Moses say? What did he say to God? Verse 15. And Moses spake unto Yahweh, saying, Let Yahweh, the God of the flesh, of uh, spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation which may go out before them, which may go in before them. What did he say? Did he say, Oh, that's unfair? The normal human reaction? I've made one mistake. How come I have to pay for it like that? Did he say that? What was his first consideration? Those people. Make sure, God, that they've got someone that can lead them into the land, out of the land. Make sure someone looks after them. Now that, brethren and sisters, why? What happened the day that he he lost his temper? He lost his temper with those people because they tested him and tested him and tested him till in the end 
He, he just, as we would say, he just flew off the handle. But when he paid the price for having done that, his first thought was for them. That's the power of love. What about Abraham? Well, in Genesis chapter 13 and chapter 14, there's the story, you're a member of the, the northern kingdom, the kings that came down. And Abraham went out to save Lot. And he went out and he did battle with the kings and he, he came back, he saved Lot and his household and he brought all those goods back and you know what happened? The, 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 the king of Sodom came out and said, listen, Abraham, you're a great fellow here, have all that. And he said, no thanks, I won't take a shoelace of it. Now, brethren and sisters, he had said to Lot in Genesis chapter 13, Lot, you choose whatever land we be brethren. You take whatever land you like. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. We be brethren. How about that in ecclesial life? Do we see that often? We be brethren. You choose. I'll take whatever's left. And then... After Lot ends up down there in Sodom and pays the price eventually by lo losing his family. But Abraham goes out, saves Lot and his family, gives them their goods back and they go back into Sodom. Does the record say that Abraham took him aside and said, you got all you deserve, Lot. What on earth are you going back there for? Haven't you learnt your lesson? He didn't, did he? He didn't think it was a good thing for him to go back there. But they were brethren. He treated him as a brother. He said, you take what you like. I'll have what's left. Who got the promise? Abraham. Not Lot. What about Caleb in Joshua chapter 14? Now there's a classic case. Caleb, one of the 12 spies, in fact, I want to look at this one, come into Joshua chapter 14. So the 12 spies, you know the story, they get sent out. Ten were faithless and two were faithful. And this is Caleb relating the story of what happened. Verse 7. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. Forty years. Now, here we are. This is 40 years later. Or 38. Years later. Right? And he's telling the story. This is what he says. He says, 38 years ago, Moses said to me, right, Caleb, I want you to go out and spy the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. What's that telling us? He didn't need to go into the land. He knew that they could take that land. He knew it was everything God had promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, I, I told Moses everything that was in my heart. Now read the next verse. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Now I'm going to I'm going to ask you an honest question. If you'd had to waste 38 years of your life wandering around in some flea-bitten desert, would you call them brethren? 
He did. Now, sometimes in ecclesial life, we get a bit upset with someone, and we sometimes may address them in a way we shouldn't, or we may even speak of them in a way we shouldn't. Look at that. Cost him 38 years. My brethren, they made the people's heart melt, but he still showed respect and honour. What about this case of Philip and Paul? Acts chapter 6, you know the story in Acts chapter 6. Seven brethren were chosen to resolve the problem in the ecclesia in Jerusalem. So there were seven arranging brethren. And one of them was Philip. Another one was Stephen. Now in our readings just the other day, Paul bragged, or not bragged, but stated that as a, a young man, he would have bragged, that here he was, a Pharisee of the strictest sect. He said, I went out and I was grabbing men and women out of the synagogues. I was beating them up. I was happy to be a witness at their death. And one of them was Stephen. So here's Philip. He's an arranging brother. You ever been an arranging brother? Well, you sit in a group. You get very friendly. Sisters, you know, you get along to sisters class. You, you have a close-knit community. It's a close-knit group. How would it be if one day someone came along and grabbed one of your arranging brethren at the meeting and took him away and had him put to death? And then a few years later, that same man came knocking on your door, as he did in chapter 21, verse 8, down in Caesarea, looking for a bed for the night. How would we feel about that? Because that's what happened. And Philip entertained him for the night. That's a big brother that can do that, isn't it? That's the spirit. Love is the power that made those actions possible. You see a brother dragged out of your meeting and taken away and put to death by someone that some years later knocks on your front door and says, I need a bed for the night. And you let him in and you spend the evening together. Now that's a big brother. Now brethren and sisters, one of the things, one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is that we never ever consider ourselves separate from the ecclesia. Never. So if you hear the statement, uh, the AB say, or you Christadelphians, or the Ecclesia did this, you get your radar up. And particularly if you're the one saying it. Because what you've done is you've separated yourself from your brethren and sisters. And that's wrong. Look at the examples here. We never, ever separate ourselves from our brethren and sisters. We never separate ourselves from the ecclesia. The ecclesia makes a decision. It's a decision we've all made. If you're an arranging brother or you're on any committee at all, once that committee makes a decision, every committee member works for that decision to be carried through, whether it was our personal opinion or not. So it's important in ecclesial life. You know, you can go through 
and I've tried to list off the great prayers in the scripture that I could find. Solomon, first of Kings in the opening. We have sinned. Nehemiah's prayer as he looks to the work of getting back to that land. We have sinned. Moses, Exodus 34, following on from the golden calf. Our sin. Ezra, our iniquities, our trespass. Daniel, Daniel 9, that great prayer. We have sinned. Jeremiah prayed, our iniquities, we have sinned. Never, ever, ever consider ourselves separate from our brethren and sisters. That's a consistent message that we receive from our scriptures. Come with me into Ephesians chapter 3. Verse, uh, verse 9. That God was working through Christ to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the Mosaic Age hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of the Mosaic Age not everyone understood that the, the Gentiles were going to be called and included in this gospel is what the apostle is telling us to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the ecclesia the manifold wisdom of God. Now on the screen we've got a couple of other translations. The diaglot, literal, let's have a a read of uh, Rotherham. In order that now unto the principalities and the authorities in the heavenlies might be made known through means of the assembly, the manifold wisdom of God. So he's talking about the fact that the Gentiles were going to be included. And this was something that hadn't been known right down through the ages of time, but now it was. And the ecclesia, he said, the congregation or the assembly, was the means by which those in the heavenlies, those in power, those who had positions of authority in the world, there was going to be an evidence that that purpose of God to include the Gentiles was now at work. And he called it the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God. In other words, and it literally means in the Greek that the pieces were going to be put together and everyone outside looking into the ecclesia was going to see an evidence of God's purpose being fulfilled. So he could look, someone out there could look in here and they could see people of different nationalities, different cultures, etc, etc. And guess what? They all get on. He, He was a witness to the power of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that a living God, through the work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, could call people from every background and they could exist in a community and get on. And in doing that, they were a reflection of the character of God and of his Son to all of those 
who observed them. Now, you'll never get that in the local darts club or the local cricket club because there's a power that isn't at work that we have. And that's the power that God showed through his son, the power of love. And when we grow more like God and when we respect that God has called us in his mercy and allow the wisdom of God to be seen in us and that you and I grow more like his son and reflect his character, people see that the only force that can do that in our life is the power of love. 